Uh, tonight, I wanted to open up taking you back. So 17 years ago, I was um, a freshman in high school. And the following summer, we were going to go on a missions trip to Costa Rica. And we, we went two years previously uh, to this date and for two weeks. And we performed a drama, which we were going to perform again. This time, we were going to go for three weeks. We were going to spend a week in a village. I'm trying not to trip over this. Uh, we're going to spend a week in a village, and then the rest of the time we would be in a city performing this drama, and we'd have like a couple days where we could, you know, go sightsee and all that. Well, the drama we had to perform was 18 minutes long. It was called King of the Streets. We actually, my youth pastor actually sold it because it did so well. Uh, but what was fascinating about it was um, the choreography within it. It was very detailed. Uh, it took a lot of time to learn, and you didn't actually know that it was about the story of Jesus until about the last three or four minutes, which drew a lot of people in. So when we would do it, we'd perform it, you know, at the end it opened up a lot of opportunity for us to engage with uh, the, the crowd. Well, because of this, about eight months before we left, um, our youth pastor put in place that we had to do four-hour practices every Saturday. Uh, and for a high schooler, that was obviously very tough. <laughs> uh, but four-hour practices... After that, we had our worship practice for youth, and then we had our youth service. So I'd be at the church from like 8 a.m. until 10 p.m., and then Sunday we'd get up for church. But we had to be there for six months. And then the last two months, we also did Wednesday nights. So it was just very, very intense. But he wanted to make sure that we were prepared, right? Not on, only that, we also had to attend 75% of youth services, so three out of four. We had to be a part of discipleship groups, so which met every two weeks uh, that dove in. So we had over 100 kids there, so our group was about nine people. We had, we, we could only be late two times. The third time, three strikes are out. We could schedule off three times, but we had to give a week's notice. I know, it sounds, sounds like a lot. And lastly, we had to fast once a month, either food one day or entertainment which was three days. I usually chose entertainment because I love food. It seems like a lot. But our youth pastor's vision was to see youth go from spectators to, to youth group spectators to youth ministry leaders. And his mission was to prepare us to be responsible adults in a foreign country for a long period of time and, and be able to listen and, and do what he says while we're out there. People thought he was crazy for taking these, these uh, teenagers, middle schoolers, and freshmen, right, that I was, on this trip. But it's not that different. Well, let me, let me back up. There were, there were some students that didn't actually get to go on the trip, right? Where they were at in their lives, it just didn't match up with the vision and the mission that our youth pastor had. And that was, that's okay, but they missed out on an incredible trip that was life-changing, I tell you that story because the story of life is not that different when you look at God's why and his mission that he's taking us on. Now, this is up for debate, but for me, God's why is, is to show unconditional love. And his mission is to get us to his party. And he will do whatever it takes to get us to that party. But God's why often conflicts with what we want. Um, in November, 
um, long time ago, I know, Pastor Lonnie was preaching a message, and he challenged all of us to uh, stop just reading books about people who read the Bible and actually read the Bible yourself. So I took that challenge, and first time I've ever done this, I read the Bible chronologically, front to back, but I also wanted time to be, be short. I wanted to read it like a novel, and I read it in two months. It's basically all I did since it's so large, and it was amazing some of the things that came out, and I want to talk about the three themes that I saw really stand out that conflict with God's why and what causes us so much suffering and pain, which lines up with the words that we're talking about tonight, so that's perfect. But through love, God is committed to get us to his party, and we have to understand that. But, he's, but it requires us to have a heart surgery, and that's painful. I'm going to go through three tonight, and you may find yourself saying, well, I think there's, there's actually this one and this one, right? Maybe that's Holy Spirit telling that you that that one's for you. That's what I challenge you with. I'm going to talk about the three. The first one, heart issue number one. That, that keeps us from God's why and causes us pain and suffering, we want to be in control. I am a pretty aggressive driver on the roads. Uh, but I, I, I know what I'm, I'm, I'm doing, right? I know the limitations of my car, and I, kn- I know my moves. So I, I actually try to hone it in when people drive with me because I don't want to scare them too bad. But it never scares me when I'm driving. And I, I just can't handle, to me, driving is you're trying to get somewhere. And, and when people sit at lights and I'm like, you're, just get there. Like, this isn't, uh, yeah, th- thank you. <laughs> uh, so, but, but what's fascinating, so my, my wife and my dad who's here, uh, both of them are, are very aggressive. Dri- the same as I am, very aggressive. But they terrify me when I'm in the car with them. <laughs> But I'm, I drive the same way. And, and what I've boiled it down to is that because I am not in control, I'm not behind the wheel, I'm not making the moves, it makes me vulnerable, it makes me afraid and nervous, right? And, and the same is true with God in our lives, whether we admit it or not, him being in control and being behind the wheel sometimes makes us nervous because he can be aggressive at times. <laughs> I'm going to go through five things, and there's more than this, of course, but five things that I think that we try to control um, that, that cause us pain. So number one, we try to control the truth. Check this out. Even in my message here tonight, right, I manipulate it to be what I want in a way, right? It's just we're human, human nature. We reduce God's words, get this, we reduce God's words to ideas we can understand and, more importantly, ideas we can manage, we reduce God's words to ideas we can understand, and more importantly, ideas we can manage. Just like I said, we, we make scriptures sometimes be what we want it to be. We create systems and say, you have to do these five steps to be saved, right? If you don't do this, you can't go to heaven, right? We, we say, take these five steps, read these scriptures, and, and, and this will cure you of your addiction. But what we find is that not, it doesn't always work the same for, for everybody, right? Everybody has to take a different journey. We use scripture. This isn't a book. I think it may be Brian's on, but I can't, I can't remember. Uh, we use scripture to uncover the meaning of love while Jesus used love to uncover the meaning of scripture. He saw through a lens of love, right? We had the law, right? And we owned that law. We controlled that. We could manage it. 
And then he came and flipped it on its head and made us vulnerable. Ooh, I don't know about this. I can't control this. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to God and he will make your path straight. You know, we get so confused with some of the stories in the Bible. I know this just from, from our youth, uh, some of the questions that they have. When you look at Noah, right, God blows up the earth through water. You look at Lot, who's willing to give up his daughters for rape, and yet God saves him and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. You look at Joshua, where God commands him to commit genocide. We look at these stories and it's really, really hard. And we're determined to get answers. And we put, right, we, we manage the truth. We put answers to it, to things that we can't understand, to ease our own minds. And, and this is so important, you know, because, because you, especially youth, and this is obviously bigger than youth, but, but a lot of youth are walking away from Christ today because they cannot, in their brains, they cannot manage this truth and get the context they need to understand why, why a loving God would do these types of things. So we want answers. So we, we make them to, to be at peace. And maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. But there, these stories, Noah lived for almost a thousand years, and yet there's only a, a few chapters on him, right? There's so much context that's missing. And I believe that God, his, again, his words are bigger than our understanding, and he wants us to fall into his love and fall into his truth that we don't have to understand everything. Because if we could understand him, he probably wouldn't be God. We can't even understand each other. Anybody who's married could say amen, right? And that's part of the mystery. It's part of the mystery is, is <laughs> getting to know your spouse, right? <laughs> All right. Dr. Alan Crabb says this. Uh, he, so he wrote a book. Let me backtrack real quick. He wrote a book, um, A Conversation Between Him and God. And so this is God speaking back to him. He says, suffering without explanation creates the opportunity for faith in me. The kind of faith that sees my heart. Suffering with explanation allows you to maintain the false hope of control. In my plan, I remove all sources of hope but me thereby revealing the narrow road to holiness, the only road that leads to my party. Suffering with explanation, without explanation, allows us the opportunity to trust in God. When we don't understand, that is our opportunity to engage with the Father. Us trying to figure it out is that's not what God is, is after. He's after our hearts, and he wants you to trust him all right. Suffering is our process of accepting that what we lost cannot bring us satisfaction or hope. Right? Again, we're trying to control, right? And when we suffer, it's because we lost something that was important to us that we held, held on to because it gave us hope. And we lose that. When we lose that, the only person that remains is God. And that's what he wants. He wants you to press into him. All right, number two. We try to control our future. I'm going to try not to go too long tonight. This is the first message that usually I'm trying to go longer, and this is the first message I'm like, I need to bring it in. All right. In Genesis, well, well, so point number two, we try to control our futures. 
see back in Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to paraphrase the verse a little bit, and uh, Joe, if you want to pull up that, that verse. But we see Abram and Sarai, who God, the angel comes to them and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. And everybody's excited, but then nothing happens. And so Sarai, Sarai goes to Abram and says, hey, why don't you, why don't you get with my, my servant Hagar, and, uh, get, and then she can give you a child, because I don't think I'm going to be able to. And, and I want to make sure that you have a line, because that's what was promised to you. So they do that, right? And then, lo and behold, Sarai gets pregnant, and she has Isaac. But this is what the angel, this is what was said, right? And the angel said, also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. This is, uh, this is Hagar, right? You are to name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son, this son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fists against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in ho- open hostility against all his relatives. So here we see two people who were getting nervous because God had, their, had control. And their futures are on the line here. This is, this is Abram's line. He said that he's going to be the father of generations, right, of, of nations. And so they take matters into their own hands. And what we see is with Ishmael, the Palestinian people came from Ishmael. And a lot of the religious and territorial fighting that we see in the Middle East actually stems back to this situation. When we try to manufacture God's blessing and our future, we inflict suffering in the world not only for ourselves, but for others. And that's just so fascinating, right? It's not just us. And it makes me, me ask the question, you know, where have we caused suffering in our lives and others' lives because we've tried to control our futures? There's some tough questions tonight, but... Again, these are, this is my journey as I read over the Bible, the things that really stood out of, of why people suffered so much. Number three, we try to control time. The best blessings come when we trust in God and lose our control, and we trust in his timing. I have a lot of stories tonight, so hopefully you like stories. But seven years ago, I went to Siberia to speak at a youth conference and kids were amazing. We had about 500 students there, and we had a workbook that we were using, so it wasn't like I had to come up with original content all the time. However, uh, they were really long sessions, and the guy I went with would take all the leaders, and I would take all the youth, so that was hard to manage a little bit because you have 500 students and just me and literally no other youth leaders in there. And God, before the last day, God spoke to me, and he said, hey, I want you to share your testimony tomorrow. I don't want you to do your sermon, your, your, your message that you have planned. Because God had just taken me on this journey. I, I, I went through this rock-bottom period in my life where I lost a lot of things, and God restored me. And so God wanted me to tell that story. I said, well, God, my testimony is not that great. It's probably only like 20 minutes long, and this is a two-hour slot that I'm supposed to fill. And I started looking at my sermon and trying to figure out how I can tie it, right? We bend it, how, we, how I can tie it back into my sermon. And I just couldn't make it happen. And I'll never forget what God said. He's like, you can control time, and it will be a two-hour slot. But lose control of time. Give that to me and watch what I do. So I'm like, all right, it's the last day. I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to jump with you, God. And so I did. I, I shared it about 20 minutes long, just like I thought. 
and I did an altar call. And I sat up there for about 15, 20 seconds, and nobody moved. I'm like, <laughs> the longest 20 seconds of my life. <laughs> or honestly, I was thinking in my head, okay, what can I, what, do we have a game that we could do? And then one student walked up, and I laid hands on them, and, and instantly the prophetic started to flow. And as I opened my eyes, all 500 students, not a single person was left in their seat, had come up to the front and wanted prayer. And I had made the mistake earlier, not really a mistake, but of saying, hey, if you want prayer, we will stay until everybody gets prayed for. <laughs> Keep in mind, I'm the only leader in the building. So every person I start laying hands on, uh, the prophetic started flowing, literally, literally to the point where I was so exhausted spiritually, emotionally, physically, that I had to sit down and could only talk to people. It was incredible. It was eight hours of prayer. Eight hours. And here I am worried about a two-hour slot. When we lose control of time, that's when God moves. When we control time, even in our church services, right, we, we put, and I get why, but we put time limits, right, on our services, on our worship, on, on everything. And what it does truly is puts God in this, this box. What happens when we let go of time and release him? Fascinating. And that's a cool story, you might say, but in, the reality is it is frustrating to wait on God's timing. Why does God not tell us when? You ever wondered that? Why does God just not tell me, God, I'm suffering right now. Just tell me when the next, <laughs> the next green light is. Tell me when I can get to my next destination. That's all I'm asking, right? Give me something. And th this revelation came, and you probably have already thought of it, that I'm slow, uh, came to me that, if we knew when, we would depend more on a timetable than we would on God. If we knew when, we would depend more on a timetable than God. And God wants you to depend on Him and remove all dependencies. He is your source of hope, not time. I'm a big basketball fan. And my wife doesn't like watching games with me because I can get very passionate, sometimes unhealthily. <laughs> and so I've learned to just record the game and watch it later. One, I can fast forward through commercials, but two, um, she, she uh, likes me better that way. And so, but, but I'm sure, let me get an amen if this has happened to any of you, but you turn on the game, right? The game's over, so you turn on the game, the recording, you're in the first quarter, and because we're just so natural to pull out our phones, and scroll through Facebook and other things, right? We pull out our, I pull out my phone, not even thinking about it, open up Facebook, and what happens? Somebody posts about the winning team. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm in the middle of the first quarter. So there's two options. Well, I guess you could, well, there, there's three, right? Well, I'll just tell you two, sorry. There's two options. One, right, your team that you want wins, and you keep watching. But the problem is your passion's already gone. The emotional connection you have is gone as you know what's going to happen. So you're, very, you're disengaged. And you just kind of check out a little bit. Yeah, you may still watch it, but you're, you're checked out. Or the team you don't want to win wins, and you just turn the game off, right? Which is usually what I have to do. <laughs> the point is that if we had knew when and, and time, if we knew when... That becomes our Savior, not Christ. 
and we check out, we disengage with the Father. I'm losing my notes here, sorry. Number four, we try to control healing. Anybody ever heard this phrase, time heals all wounds? We all say it, right? We put a clock. We don't, it's not necessarily like a set time, right? We, we put a clock on how long it takes to heal from something. And it may look something like this. Right after a year or two, we're saying, man, we get angry and frustrated. Why am I still dealing with this? Why am I still grieving? Why am I still dealing with this pain? Even we look at other people, right? And people look at us, and they say, man, I can't believe they're still dealing with that. I just can't believe, well, I don't know why they can't just get past it. So much time has passed. At the beginning of this year, I decided to stop drinking. I set out a goal an entire year that I wanted to go without a drop of alcohol, beer, anything, which is hard because I really do love the taste of, of a good IPA. But I knew, I knew I needed to do this. And today actually is, I think, the July, yeah, June 1st. So we're, what, five months in, something like that? A month ago, I thought to myself, I'm like, man, it's been four months and I literally could just jump right back into the same regime that I had. Why? Right? It's been so long. Time has passed. And I'll never forget what God told me. He said, Donovan, time does not heal. You're looking to time to be your savior, to heal you. Time does not heal. It dilutes, it separates, it distances but it also creates space where you can heal if you choose to. Like, interesting. He said, you need to engage with why you drank in the first place. Because you could go the entire year and jump right back into it. Time does not heal. If you get anything out of tonight, don't be ashamed if you're still struggling with pain or grief or anything. It's, we have to shift our lens and engage with that pain that's what we have control over is our ability, the opportunity to engage. And God will meet us and heal us there. More on that story here in a minute. Uh, Joe, if you want to wind that clip up. Number five, we try to control judgment. I'm going to show you a, a, a little clip here and then we'll, we'll talk about it. We want justice for other people's actions. If you, if you know this movie... Um, his father used to beat him, and that's who he was seeing in this clip. The first picture was his father. The second was his father as a child. We believe we know what others deserve, and we want to control that. And it's, we don't realize how much we do it, how often we do judge and control the judgment of somebody else. The problem is it causes us a lot of pain, and I'll explain why here in a minute. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Jeff, you'll bring that up, verse, or chapter 4, verse 5, it says, So resist the temptation to pronounce premature judgment on anything before the appointed time when all will be fulfilled, fully fulfilled. Instead, wait until the Lord makes his appearance, for he will bring all that is hidden in darkness to light and unveil every secret motive of everyone's heart. Then when the whole truth is known, each will receive praise from God. 
We create our own pain when we judge others' motives. I'm going to kind of give you a, a small example here. So let's say, it's totally made up that she's here, but Haley comes to me and she says, hey, Donovan, I'm not going to come tonight. I'm going to keep the kids home. I just need to stay at home. Right? I could really respond in three ways. One is, okay, cool, right? Generally, that doesn't happen, right? The other two are, are I could say, okay, uh, man, she just doesn't support me. Boom, right? I judge her right there. It causes pain, hurt. Or I could say, man, you know what? I bet it's because we had that argument about the Swiss cheese this morning. And, and then what happens, right? We, it's like a boomerang. We throw that out there. That's our judgment. We throw it out there, but it comes back as hurt and deception and hate and pain. You know what hate is? This is my definition for it. Hate is love that's been abused that does not know how to communicate. Hate is love that's been abused and it doesn't know how to communicate. Whether it's been abused by somebody else's actions or by your own judgment of somebody else. Mm. It's quiet out there. My dad's old phrase. If you're angry with someone, did you control their judgment? Did you judge their motives? Some of my biggest pain in my life has come from that. A lot of close relationships I've lost because I've judged motives. We aren't the judge, God is. We can't wield it. It's not with other pe- just with other people, though. It's also with ourselves. We are our worst critic, right? We judge ourselves. Too often we judge our ugliness when God wants us to understand it. I was telling Pastor this and our elder team, uh, God w- was kind of working through this with me where, where he said, an enemy is just someone whose story you don't know or don't understand. An enemy is somebody whose story you haven't heard or you aren't willing to understand it, right? There's a lady at my work who um, she was kind of, she, I had a hard time trusting her, didn't really want to get close to her. I just had a really bad feeling. We got to talking one day, and I found out that she had twins, and she, uh, one of them died in her arms at birth. And that completely shifted my lens of her. Empathy came in. My my view of humanity in her came out. And I started to look at her differently because I started to begin to understand her story. Who's your enemy? Chances are you haven't heard their story yet. But like I was saying, we judge ourselves as well. And going back to the, the drinking story here, so God told me to engage with my pain. Why did I start drinking in the first place? Now, again, like I said, I, I do enjoy a good IPA, so there's that. But as I unravel the tape, what I realized is that a lot of the drinking stemmed from me being ashamed of my anger. And with anger, it's fascinating because if you read books on it, you'll realize anger, you feel bad, you, you get angry at somebody, and then you feel ashamed at how you treated that person, and that shame fuels more anger, which then you treat that person even worse. And it's just the cycle that goes and goes and goes. 
And so to cover that up, started drinking. And God told me, he said, you are trying to remove your anger. Stop judging it and honor it. Stop judging it and honor it. Honor why it's there. It's there for a reason. Understand its story. See, we all have these internal battles, whether it be shame, whether it be anger, whatever you want to call it. What is yours? But we try to remove it, and God is saying, no, no, no. What? It's telling you a story. Listen. Because when you hear that story, it brings validation. When I say honor it, it's, you're honoring why it's there. We've all been through, through stuff. We all have our own s- stuff in the mud. And we just want to pass over it. God wants you to honor it. Because he can validate it and he can set you free. But first you have to understand that story. Engage in the story of your pain rather than controlling the judgment of it. That could just be the sermon right there, right? Control, and that's the one I'm going to spend the most time on. There's so much control as you read through the, well, our lives, right? But also in the Bible, people trying to control and it causes bitterness, it causes resentment and, and, and confusion and misunderstanding. Hard issue number two that I want to talk about is entitlement. Entitlement. Only a couple ones here that I'm going to talk about, but we are entitled to having a good life. Ah. Sorry, my notes keep going wild here. We feel entitled to having a good, satisfied life. And there's nothing wrong with wanting a good life. It's when we expect it and we demand it and we get frustrated and say, God, why didn't this happen? I was reading about bonuses because I was trying to figure out what to do with my team at work. And one of the incentives that this guy tried, he's like, you know what? I just want to honor my team. I'm going to bring donuts to work. And so this Friday, he gets a bunch of donuts. He brings them into his team. They're thrilled. They love it. So he says, I'm going to do this next week. So he does it again. He's like, we're just going to make this a Friday thing. Well, over time, what happened was somebody comes in, opens the the donut boxes. "Ah, There's no maple? I'm not even going to have one. I can't believe this company. Literally, that's what happened. And they went from having this treat that wasn't guaranteed to expecting it and demanding it and being frustrated and angry with the company because they didn't get what they wanted. True story. It's easy to expect things to happen in our life when God blesses us, right? And he blesses us, and he blesses us, and oh, God, what happened? Of course this happened, right? That's what we say. I can't believe God didn't come through. It's hard. We can become addicted to the experience of satisfaction. People turn to drugs, alcohol, sex, TV, social media. We even find ourselves worshiping God because we want to feel satisfaction. More on that one here in a minute. The great conflict is that God is trying to get us to his party, and we're trying to experience the full-fledged party now. 
God gave his son as the hope of glory, not as hope realized fully now. This entitlement can lead to us feeling like our wounds need to be healed before we can serve, before we can love, before we can give, before we can be happy. And we spend our entire lives trying to fill a void that can never be filled. Number two, and this is a really hard one, so please don't stone me. We become entitled about our prayers being answered the way that we want. This is a hard issue, entitlement. Well, I'm sure we all have been confused, right, when a, when a prayer doesn't get answered the way that we want. I remember the same Costa Rica trip that we went on 17 years ago. One of our leaders was deaf. And he was 21, 22 years old. And I remember at the village that we were at, we decided we were going to pray for him. We read scripture. We worshiped all night, literally like five hours praying for this guy. And towards the end, he started to go out into this field. And we, would, we were singing, I think, uh, Let It Rain, actually. Um, Ajove, we were singing it in, in Spanish. And he would jump up and down every time. He would go about five, ten yards each time, jump up and down so he could hear something. We're like, oh, my God, this is happening. Sweet. He got about 50 yards out, and he falls to his knees. He says, no, God, why? Why, God? He started weeping. Grown man, weeping. Because he lost the healing. And we start going through the control, right? The control heart thing, right? Well, God, we had, we had two or three gathered. We were quoting scripture. All these systems that we've set up that this works. Here, here's, here's how this happens. And we are left asking the question of why and demanding an answer from God. Anybody ever demanded an answer from God? I know I have. And we say, God, I'm done with you. I'm done. And then we end up coming back a few weeks later, right? Why doesn't God answer these prayers? I'm sure there's a million reasons why. I believe that his reasons are bigger than our immediate satisfaction. He's outside of time, outside of space. There's only a certain part that we could understand. I wonder sometimes if we could even comprehend the answers if he gave them to us. Kind of going back to my, my earlier point, where we take God's idea or words and we put them into ideas, we break them down to something that we can understand, and then we manage that thing, right? It's the same concept. It becomes easy to be entitled about our prayers. But let's remember this, that Christ laid down his entitlement so that we may share in his glory. If you bring up this verse, Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says this, he existed in the form of God, yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. When we don't understand, when you don't understand, let's do the same that Christ did. Lay down what you think you're owed. Die on that cross, and I promise you Christ will raise with you. 
Heart issue number three, we are consumed with self-centeredness. Bishop Tutu says this, that uh, the source of suffering is self-centeredness. And when you look aside from natural disasters, if you're in pain or suffering, chances are most likely that you are focusing on yourself in some way or another. I frankly could have just talked about this. I, this could be the only heart issue, frankly, when you dial it in. I just wanted to be able to give you three. Again, bending it the way I want. <laughs> Self-centeredness really could encapsulate all of it. In, in, in this earlier, uh, in Philippians, early in this book, it says this, if you've gotten anything at, at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, it, it being a community of the Spirit means anything to you. If you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. This encapsulates all three of the hard issues that I just talked about. <laughs> Jesus called us to love, and love is living for the benefit of another. It's laying down what we want for others. To live for Christ is literally forfeiting our self-centeredness. To live a life for Christ is forfeiting our self-centeredness. And self-centeredness is the confliction of God's why. Self-centeredness is the confliction with God's why. We become self-centered in our careers, our success, our titles, right? And if you're sitting there saying, well, I don't have a career or a title, it still applies to you because you spend your days being frustrated because you don't have a career or a title or a purpose, right? To, because of time, I'm going to just give you a brief overview here, but Saul spent his, a lot of his reign being jealous of David, right? When David, when they said, hey, David, or uh, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And then he spent so much time trying to beat David and track him down and kill him. And it ended up with him losing his reign. Because he was so self-centered and focused on what was his and what was owed to him. And maybe you found yourself in that place in life where you're trying to protect what's yours and you end up losing everything. We become self-centered in our relationships. This was a revelation to me, right? Our relationships are, are, are grounded in self-centeredness, which is why they're so hard. Let me tell you, I'll, I'll break it down for you. Find somebody in this room that you're not close with and you don't have a desire to be close with. Just follow me here for a minute. Or if you want to pick somebody from work, do that. If I ask you, why don't you want to be close to this person? Your responses may be, well, we don't really get along. I don't really like that person. It takes a lot of work to talk to them. Uh, they're just kind of weird. Right? You could go on. The list goes on. But it's all things that we want things almost like an application to be my friend. These are the things that need to check off. And, and uh, you don't mark that, so we're not going to be that close. I'll, be, I'll talk to you cordially, but we're not going to go any deeper. So when we look at our closest friends, get this, it's founded in self-centeredness. 
That's why the deeper you go, the harder it gets. When you look at marriage, why is marriage so hard? Because our self-centered nature comes out in our marriage. And if you haven't experienced it there, I know you have when you have kids. (laughs) Amen. It's grounded in self-centeredness. What we need and want even, right, when when we look at our relationship with God, I told you I would get back to this. We go to God oftentimes, I know I do, out of personal advantage. When was the last time that we prayed to God to see how he was? It's always about what we want, what we need, what I'm going through. Could it be, even in our worship, right, Sometimes we worship God just to, because we want to experience him. We want to be fulfilled. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it could it be that this whole time in the Bible, God just wants us to love him for who he is, not for what he can give you? We've all had friends like that, right, that all they do is they come around because you can give them something? That is frustrating. Could God just be wanting us to love him for who he is and not what he can give you? All through Judges, we see the people, right? They love God, they're, they're worshiping God, everything's good, and then they fall away, and they do what they want. Thanks, God, I'm good. And then they go into slavery, they go into oppression and captivity, and then what happens? They come back to God, and that cycle repeats itself over and over and over, and as you're reading it, you're like, can you guys just figure it out, <laughs> get it together? But it's the system that we live in, even today. When are, when are you closest to God? It's generally when you're in pain, you're going through something, and we pursue him. And we return to God when we feel our blessing is being threatened. We're constantly challenged by control, self-centeredness, and entitlement. How are these affecting your joy? your relationship with God, with others. Notice when you get angry or sad, critical of others. I bet you one of these three is is at the center of it. Maybe not. Maybe it's a different one that God's put on your heart. 1 John 4, 8. I didn't give you this one, Joe. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love and he wants to get you to his party. Our suffering, our pain, our confusion stem from these heart issues that conflict with God's why. Getting us to his party is going to hurt. It will hurt, but he's committed to getting us there. But we have to face our heart conditions. So as you, I'm going to close with this, as you, um, as you go this next week, I challenge you to, to be aware how is control causing me suffering and pain? How, is in, how am I being entitled in my life? And how am I being self-centered in my relationships, and my needs and wants? Stand with me and we'll, we'll close out. Father God, I just, I thank you for who you are, Lord. And, and I just want to say I love you for who you are, Lord, I pray that you'd reveal to us how 
how we've been self-centered, how we've been entitled, how we're trying to control everything in our lives, that we confront the hard issues. If it's not one of those, God, that you'd, you'd show each of us what that is in our life, but that we would begin to engage with that pain and stop trying to remove it. We would engage with the pain, allow you to do heart surgery in us so that we may experience your joy, your, your happiness, and, and live in your mission and in and, and your why, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.